Hello, everyone, and welcome again to the Chief Librarian Podcast. I am your Chief Librarian, Chris Morgan, and I am happy to be here talking to you about, oh my gosh, a lot of Warhammer stuff that has been going on for me in the last couple of weeks. First off, I'll do a quick recap of the War Games for Warriors charity event that occurred just about two weekends ago. So I'll briefly describe some of the games I played, some of the times that were had, and how successful the event was, which it was very successful, and I'm very pleased that it was. A really just fantastic job to everybody who was involved with that. So as I talk about the event and some of my games, I'll put some pictures up. You'll be able to see them on YouTube. I will also be sharing some pictures on my Facebook page a little bit later, which is facebook.com slash brothercaptainmorgan. For those of you who like to do the Facebooking, if not, uh, check out the YouTube video, and I will have some pictures up around the time that I'm talking about the games and whatnot. And so far as announcements go, there is a War Games for Warriors charity event going on for Age of Sigmar coming up in the next month or so. So if you are still interested in donating to the great causes of War Games for Warriors, then you still have an opportunity. You can support it through Age of Sigmar if you're into that sort of thing. Sigmar is a topic that, I, I mean, I just, I love dwarves. I'm super into dwarves. I think that they're really cool, and Age of Sigmar is cool dwarves. However, it is very difficult for me to play as many game systems as I want to play with the time that I have. So while you may see some Age of Sigmar content in here every once in a while, it's not the main focus of the show, but if it's cool and interesting and I'm having a good time with it, I'm going to talk about it. So far as other announcements are concerned, I will be helping to judge the Las Vegas team tournament that's going on in September. So if you listen to the show and you like what you hear and you want to hear more or you want to come and talk to me, I am more than happy to say hello to anybody who wants to see me there. I will be judging the team tournament along with Adam Solis, who is acting as the head judge for that event. And I will be supporting him. So if you are going to that event and you want to say hi, please say hi. Also, don't make me card you. That would be sad. That pretty much covers the announcements, so I'll get into a little bit of hobby news slash progress. So far as hobby news is concerned, I'm not in the habit of doing competitive codex reviews for new codexes that come out. There's tons of channels that do that. There's, I watched probably a dozen videos on Thousand Suns and Grey Knights from half a dozen or more YouTube channels that focus on that sort of thing. They do a good job and Honestly, I could throw my hat into that pile, but I don't know that it would stand out. It would probably just get lost with a bunch of hats. So the stuff that I noticed from the book that I picked up, and I did pick up the new Grey Knights book, I really liked some of the crusade rules that were in the Grey Knights book. I really liked the idea of creating a demonic nemesis for your Grey Knights character. One of the things in Grey Knights lore that has been sort of a constant is because they have these relationships with demons, and they're all antagonistic relationships, but there are demons who just hate Grey Knights for continually banishing them. So what they do is they make it a point to make their lives miserable. You see some stuff like that with characters from previous incarnations of the Grey Knights Codex who unfortunately no longer exist in the Codex itself as it is now. One of those characters is Vorth Mordrak, and while he didn't specifically have a demon nemesis, he had sort of this survivor's guilt and this connection to his brotherhood that was so strong that the spirits of his warriors would show up and aid him in battle. And that was kind of a cool thing. 
And the big man, Kaldor Drago, himself had a curse placed on him by a demon. I believe it was Unkar the Reborn, though I'm guessing that from memory at this point. But that was the reason he got sent into the warp and cursed to not really exist in the material plane anymore, was because he had made a, a demon mad. So with crusade rules allowing you to create basically a demon nemesis, one of the things that's cool about it is that it allows another player to take on the role of your personal antagonist. At the same time, Grey Knight's narrative is so heavily focused around demons and conflicts with demons that if you don't have a demon player nearby, it can feel maybe a little bit forced to try to pull this off. Though, I would say don't let that stop you if it's something that you find really fun. So that was the standout feature of the Crusade section of the codex and if you have some interest or if you have already done some games and would like to tell me about what you think about the new crusade rules for gray knights i'd be very interested in hearing them over the years and this kind of goes into the hobby progress section i guess over the years i have accumulated here and there gray knight models it's only fitting you know this is the chief librarian podcast it's an entire chapter of psychers it's not exactly something that is too far outside of my wheelhouse, as I guess you could say. But I'm very interested in the Grey Knights. But since the 5th edition codex, there hasn't been something that really tempted me. And the 5th edition codex itself was a little bit too overtuned at the time for me to feel like I could play very much. And my first love always being Blood Angels, I was constantly trying to make those guys work. That said, I've picked up some models here and there, and now I'm looking at a shelf next to me and I got everything out, got everything together. I've actually got enough models on either on sprues or old metal ones that I picked up or a couple Nemesis Dread Knights to start a second army, like officially, which is a big deal for me. So I'm going to be spending some time you know, taking a little bit of a hobby break from my Blood Angels because I, I painted up a lot of stuff over the last few weeks for them. And I'll be playing a lot of Crusade for them in the Diadem War Crusade campaign. So I thought it would be a fun palette cleanser to get into Grey Knights and start playing some games with them. Maybe that'll be my new tournament list for the next little while just to kind of spice things up. Either that or it will just make me not play either faction super well. But hey, as long as I'm having a good time, I'll keep going. I was able to get all of the models finished that I needed for War Games for Warriors, speaking of my Blood Angels, and that was three Eliminators, that was 10 tabletop-ready Primaris Hellblasters, who were, surprisingly, the MVPs of the event for me. I know. I said I was crazy. You said I was crazy. I brought Hellblasters to a tournament in the Blood Angels list. But I'll tell you, they survived and destroyed lots of things every single game. It was weird. I also got the Redemptor Dreadnought finished, who was also just this wonderful distraction Carnifex. And I got that ridiculously efficient Primaris Chaplain on bike. So I'll put up some pictures of those guys for you to take a look at them. Most of them are tabletop at best at this point, not up to my usual standard, but all of them were at least battle ready. In other hobby news, I put in a model for a painting competition at a local store, not expecting to do terribly well, but it was a Mephiston model, and Mephiston, of course, being my favorite character, I decided to go crazy. I've probably done six Mephistons over my career of varying quality. One of them I even had commissioned from my best friend, who is an excellent painter. 
But uh, Mephiston is the model that made me basically fall in love with 40K and the inspiration behind my nickname as the librarian. And if you've seen my little internet avatar out there, you've probably noticed that there is a little bit of inspiration from Big Mad Mephiston in its design. So in honor of the good times I've had with Mephiston, I figured it was time that I did a dramatic reimagining of Mephiston for his Primaris model. And what I did was I got some wings and I did some cutting and some green stuff and, and reposed him and got a very, very fancy, very tall base to make him look like he was flying around after having cast the wings of Sanguinius Psychic Power. Now, it makes me sad to see that Mephiston is not in a super playable place so far as competitive games go. Competitive games aren't the end-all be-all, however, and I do expect to be getting some use out of him in more casual affairs. I did this same sort of thing with the old Mephiston model, where I found some, I believe they were Pegasus wings from the Fantasy Battles range, did probably my first extremely rough rudimentary green stuffing to get those wings onto the back of that model. And because they were so much taller than he was, I had to put them on like a tall rock base so that the wings wouldn't drag underneath or behind the base somehow. It was, it was pretty wonky. And it was my first attempt at trying to do like a lightning power effect. It's, it's been a few years since then. And I wanted to reimagine that take that I did and put a Primaris spin on it. So I ended up taking second place in that painting competition. Yay. And I'd like to give a warm welcome and a shout out to all of the new painters who participated in the new painter category of that contest. As a new player, it is really intimidating to set up models across from someone, but it's even more intimidating to put your paint jobs up for critique. So kudos to you guys for doing that. Congratulations on winning what you won, and I hope that you keep the passion for painting alive. So with those announcements and hobby discussions out of the way, let's get on to what we'll be doing for today's episode. Now, I talked at the end of last episode about having a segment on Session Zero for the Diadem War. Unfortunately, schedules didn't line up in time for this recording to go through. Something about kids and weddings and all those other <clears throat> unimportant things that people have to deal with in real life. So hopefully we'll have that segment recorded for Episode 4 and you'll be able to enjoy sort of the Session Zero and Warlord introductions for all four of us who will be participating in that campaign. I do, however, still have the segment I recorded with Lou Rollins about parenting and the hobby, and that was such a wonderful interview for me to do. I got so much out of just talking to him and asking him questions about it, and I encourage everyone to listen to it carefully and think about whether you have a family, you want to start a family, or you're trying to involve people who you care about in the hobby, I think it's a worthwhile discussion. I have some photos and some video going along with the game that I played with Lou after the interview was done, and that will be in the outro for those who are interested. Now, Lou was the hobby track champion for season one, and I really think that it can't be oversold so far as the things that he did to really make his army special right down to having like QR codes on the bottoms of his bases so he could flip a model over and someone could scan the QR code and get taken to a website that had a description of who that was 
who it was inspired by, whether it was someone from a Black Library story or a player that he played against and built a model to represent on the tabletop. It's a really beautiful, heart-filled, powerful representation of a sincere love for his army and his hobby. And I definitely encourage you to check out the footage that I have of those miniatures that's going to be in the wrap-up for this episode. For the second segment, I will be recording and discussing another lore topic. Now, this topic is about world spirits. World spirits are an interesting concept in Warhammer lore, and it's something that, like Enuncia that we talked about last week, is perhaps a little bit undeveloped, but there's a lot of interesting references to things that could be world spirits, as well as representations in different Black Library novels and other stories throughout the 41st millennium. So we will be doing a little bit of a dissection and a discussion on those. Hopefully you find that enjoyable. Now, on to the War Games for Warriors recap. So, to sum it up, this being the third event for War Games for Warriors, I'm happy to report that we were able to raise over $3,000 more than we did during the last event in 2019. 2020 being cancelled for 2020 reasons, we were able to raise more than $8,000 for the two charities. And that's a fantastic amount of money. We had some great prize support. We had a lot of people attend. I believe there were over 60 people who attended the tournament aspect of the event. I myself, I played five rounds. I went to two, one, and two, which probably doesn't surprise many people out there considering what was in my list and all that. But because of the number of attendees and because of the number of winners, like consecutive winners throughout the tournament, they ended up needing to go a sixth round, but I had only planned on and was able to attend for five, so I had to drop a little bit early, which was a bit of a bummer, but it did mean that I got to go home and see my little baby man, and that was totally worth it. My first game was a grudge match against my best friend playing his Tyranids, and I ended up losing that game, so mark that as a grudge win for him, though we will see how he does next time. Regardless, I was able to play a new player someone who had just started playing the game, I think just this year, he was playing Custodes, and he played a very tactical game. I, Custodes are kind of a weak point for, for me specifically. I don't know if it's a, a problem that Blood Angels have in general as well, but I have a magical power that allows my opponents to roll a lot of successful 4-plus invulnerable saves. My opponents will make more 4-plus invulnerable saves then they will make three plus invulnerable saves. I have no explanation for this, but it has existed for several editions now. And this game was no exception, though I think the thing that really saved me was the volume of attacks and the sort of tactical play in the movement phase that I did that I think had my opponent had a little bit more experience in the game, he probably could have picked up on and, and shut down on. Not to say he didn't do a good job, but I was able to, with my deployment, make him split his forces a little bit and I kept his Telamon Dreadnought kind of off in the corner away from where I could do anything just by redeploying a few things I was using that of uh, that sort of fade away stratagem that you can do with the Phobos units where I keep popping up and leaving and popping up and leaving trying to get some points for engaging all fronts and it kept his Telamon over in the corner but away from the main action the main action involved a lot of those very, very tough speeders. Of course, there was the, the jet bike 
captains that were running around causing problems. And I threw just dice and dice and dice at those guys until I wore them down and managed to pull off a victory. But it was a very fun game. I was very happy to meet him, and I do hope that I have a, another chance to roll dice with him again in the future because it was an absolute pleasure. Game three was a game that I was dreading, and I, considering how I was doing in the tournament so far, I was a little bit surprised to run into an Admech list. This was, of course, a Lucius Admech list. He had uh, one of those nasty bombers. He had a big old unit of Electro Priests that he would deep strike in and charge me with. And I managed to tie that game playing a very cagey sort of reserve-based game where I'm trying to keep some units alive to get victory points. And I was able to keep all three of those key units alive to score 15 victory points at the end of the game. And I was able to also continually wear down him and keep him from scoring some of his secondary. So he had... Uh, a unique secondary for the Adeptus Mechanicus that involved killing a non-vehicle unit and you had to kill more non-vehicle units than they killed of your vehicle units. So every time he managed to wipe out one of my units with a vehicle or just in general, I was able to turn around and wreck one of his vehicles to prevent him from getting those points. So that was pretty clutch. That was a very intense game, a perfectly awesome gentleman of an opponent and we had a, a really good time. It was a learning moment for me playing Adeptus Mechanicus. And I really just, I had to ignore my instincts to rush in and charge and instead focus on accomplishing the objectives of the mission. And I was happy to come out with a tie for my first game against 9th edition Adeptus Mechanicus. Round four, I was fighting a murderous clown posse. It was the Harlequins. And that was a very close neck and neck game. We both had some very swingy dice. He ended up taking the win in that game through some clever movement, some good choices on his part, some bad choices on my part. I actually forgot my entire first command phase, which was a huge bummer. But I don't know how it would have gone if I had remembered. Maybe it would have been great, maybe not. Either way, uh, towards the end of the game, I felt like I was turning things around just a little bit, just enough, but I had taken enough of a beating in the early rounds that by the time the game ended, Though the points were fairly close, he had certainly secured his win. A very worthy opponent in the Harlequins. And my game five, I played against a custom Necron dynasty that had a bunch of warrior bodies, some teleporting shenanigans, two of those doomsday arcs, a big old unit of those shield, I believe they're Triarch Praetorians or whatever they're called. They're the guys with the big shields and the, the zappy axe Necron scythe thingy majiggers. I know I'm getting super technical with this description. Nevertheless, it was a good game. It was also another close game. I was able to win out on some of the deployment stuff. And in each and every single one of these games, that big 10 man unit of Primaris Hellblasters just came through for me. I have no real explanation, but it just was picking units off the table. And it was staying alive even if it was taking damage. I really had a good time with that unit. And, oh man, if it was just a little bit cheaper, I think I would keep it. I think I would keep it for sure. And I may still play with it a little bit. Maybe not at the full 10-man size. But having those Assault 3 Plasma weapons, it's just really powerful. 
And with the right buffs, you can mitigate a lot of that hurt yourself possibility. So I'm not going to say that this is the new meta and it's the meta buster. Obviously it wasn't, but it was a good time. It was a fun experiment and it got those models off of my pile of shame and into my playable models box. So yay for that. I would once again like to extend my sincere gratitude for all of the people who assisted in getting prize support for the event, including the Black Library authors who donated their time and energy into signing a bunch of books that we were able to get raffled and auctioned off. And it was a really amazing thing to just see all the people in the community locally, as well as some people who traveled from up north in Idaho, sort of the, the northwest area, come in and support the event, especially as it was going on like the same weekend as the GW event and another GT in sort of the the mid the mid area of the United States and it was only like a week after Charity Hammer and they raised a ton of money as well. So the big takeaway is we have a very awesome generous community especially here locally but I think worldwide this reflects well on the type of people who play Warhammer when sometimes there are things going on in the community that maybe don't reflect as well. And we get so hung up on the latest competitive controversy where somebody cheated on stream or somebody said something online. I really just like to have this as a thing I can point to and say, no, this is part of the community that I really enjoy. And it's part of the community which I am happy to call myself a part of. So thank you, everybody. So with those things out of the way, let's get on to our first segment with Lou Rollins talking about parenting in the hobby. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another segment of the Chief Librarian Podcast. I am very happy to have here with me Lou Rollins. Lou, introduce yourself. Thanks, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Like you mentioned, my name is Lou Rollins. Been a hobby gamer for almost my entire life, uh, which for a lot of you is probably longer than you've been alive. I started when I was about 12 and I've uh, been going strong ever since. Discovered Warhammer 40K when I was newly married going to school and uh, was just walking down Main Street uh, where I was attending college at and walked into a game store and there was that second edition box set of Warhammer 40K and uh, yep. been hooked ever since, brother. So it's been a, a long, fun, enjoyable uh, journey working through the growth of Warhammer 40K into the hobby that it is today. Speaking of long journey of growth, I think you're probably the most dedicated and prolific Death Watch player <laughs> that I have ever known. You've been playing Death Watch, I think, since before Death Watch were Death Watch. That True. had their own book. True. So yeah. Tell me, tell me a little bit about what you love about them so much. Well, I, you know, having served in the Marines, I don't think there was much of a choice to be a dedicated Space Marine player. You know, having grown up with the what I would consider to be the golden age of science fiction movies and when aliens came out you know that just added yeah. another layer of commitment and dedication to the faction but what what happened was you know with that second edition box set I started playing ultramarines which I think everybody does they're the poster poster boy of the poster boys right for games workshop and so started to do it with ultramarines and then uh 
decided I like Imperial Fist too, so I painted up some Imperial Fists. Then my brother wanted to do Space Wolves, and I was like, well, shoot, they're cool. So I did Space Wolves and uh, sold part of my other army to, you know, afford Space Wolves to do the Space Wolf army. Well, long story short, I, I chapter jumped uh, and, <laughs> and, and finally came across uh, in the lore, and I think at the time it was maybe two paragraphs about, you know, this idea of kind of the special forces of the Marines, the Death Watch. And I was like, hey, I can play all the chapters at the same time. What a what an awesome and thing that would yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> so, good. And so, uh, you know, I got hooked. I got hooked on the lore, and every time anything Death Watch would come out, I'd snatch it up and read about it. And and so it's just, it's awesome. And, and I think the faction is finally in a place now where I think it really has good fluff, uh, especially the, uh, the Brotherhood of Veterans uh, stratagem, I think is what it's called, where uh, you can spend two CP and play any chapter that's out there. And... You know, take advantage of that. And so it's just, uh, it's fluffy. I love the idea of, you know, hunting down Xenos. And it's just, it's been, yeah, it's been fantastic. And I just love where it's at right now. I love where the game's at right now. And uh, the Death Watch faction's where it's at. In fact, just as I was coming up here to meet with you today, uh, one of my teammates uh, on our team channel was talking about these sexy new Dark Elder models that were coming out, and he was baiting me a little bit. He's like, Lou, you might have to come to the dark side. <laughs> and I was like, uh, as I recall, you recently just bought a Uriel Ventress captain model, who, by the way, mm. has been into the warp a few times and come out to, you know, to serve as Vigil in the Watch. I said, so... I beg to differ, good sir. I think you are the one that might be <laughs> shifting tides. Yeah, so. on, on, on the verge <laughs> of, an, of a new of collection. A new, correct, yeah. I will admit, I don't know a whole lot about Uriel Ventress, aside from the the Nightbringer story that was before the Redcon, the pre-Redcon uh -huh. yeah. version, which, yeah. you know, confession on my part, I miss... I miss the Necrons where the Star Gods were the Star Gods. I always thought that was the coolest thing about them. And then to have them kind of like fragmented and, and shattered and stuff, that was a little bit disappointing. But, you know, I, I also think that the new Necrons are cool. I still just kind of, for my own Necron collection, I would imagine it would be primarily Star God themed with a, a dynasty Agreed. that, that yeah. focused a little bit more on that older fantasy and something that still really appeals to me. Anyway, but I know we first played against each other at a tournament. Yeah, I think it was... Uh, Endzone. Yeah, Endzone. 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 Yeah. yeah, up north in northern Utah. And yeah, just randomly drew each other. And uh, I, I think I was playing Death Watch at the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and the only thing I remember about that is I was just so impressed with uh, what a gracious opponent that you were. And, Shucks. And <laughs> no, seriously. <laughs> oh, but man. I got lucky with a sniper shot. And if I remember correctly, I think I killed Mephiston. You did. And, and I think you, you came a little part at the seams there. And, and it was calculated retribution, right? <laughs> <laughs> you, you, yeah, I was like, all right. <laughs> You killed my favorite, so uh, gloves are off. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think that was, uh, I think that was when my eighth edition Smash Captain, yeah, went on a murderous a rampage. Spree. Yeah, he, yeah. He, he wrecked me pretty badly. I think he got a grand total of like two Vindicators and what was what's that flyer called? The the uh, it's the special Death Watch. The one. The, the, the Corvus Blackstar. Yeah, Corvus yeah, Blackstar. Yeah, yeah which the, those are really cool. But yeah, he he was uh, he was an angry, angry boy um, <laughs> after after the chief librarian went down, and you know more power to him for that. 
But uh, no, that was a real fun game. I also really enjoyed the time we spent together doing that. And that was when we first started talking a little bit more regularly. I saw you at events and around the community right. before then. Sure. But that was uh, that was the first time like we played and became we had an interaction. Yeah, yeah. And, and feel like we became more more friends than acquaintances at right. that point. Right. Um, really enjoyed that game. And all the games we've done since, we've played a few times since yeah. then, haven't we? Yeah, had a, had a few games. It's been fun. And, it, you know, for me, uh, I'm at a point in my life where uh, win, lose, or draw, as long as I'm having a good game with my opponent and we're having fun and we're enjoying the interaction, it's a victory for me, right? Um, you know, when I was a younger man decades ago, uh, you know, winning was much more important than it is now. And, sure. and, and for me, winning now has a much different connotation. And uh, the biggest win for me is walking away from the table, uh, having earned a new friendship. And, you know, here we are. Yeah. Having a conversation. Yeah. But uh, we just had lunch before coming over here to do this. We're going to be rolling some dice after we're done recording here. And mostly what I wanted to bring Lou on to talk about, this is something that he and I have talked about off and on here and there. That's something that I care about quite a bit is parenting and gaming. Yeah. And how do we be ambassadors of a tabletop hobby like Warhammer 40K to our own kids? Because it's it's different, right? The, when you're when you're going to a game store and it's new player night and you're you're trying to help a person, but you're sure. spending maybe the next three hours with this person. Yeah. But you're going to different homes <laughs> after the night's over. Sure. But with your kids. Like you have to live with that person still right. and you love that person and it creates this whole different sort of dynamic. So absolutely. I'll, I'll open up a little bit here with just some of my own personal history with the, the Warhammer hobby and coming at it from my perspective, because when I was a kid, my dad was a war gamer and I grew up. Which was unorthodox back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. Very we're, unorthodox. We're talking over 30 years ago. Yeah, You had to almost be a closet gamer back then. Yeah, yeah, you you had like a, a select group of other guys right. that, that you played with. There weren't as many stores around. There weren't as many different kinds of game systems around. And the chances that you would be born into a home that was already into this kind of hobby, I think, are are fairly low. Yeah, they're rare, um, very rare. And so I I grew up with war gaming just in general. My dad has a military history degree and he loved to reenact historical battles on his table. Sure, and that's sure. where we started. Eventually that led to, to Warhammer as right. many things do. But with my own kid, well, I have two kids now, but my oldest boy, I was into the hobby when he was born, but I divorced from his mother very quickly after he was born. Right. And the, the experience I've had as a dad to a kid and this hobby has been much different than my dad's own experience because sure. he had me with him all the time. Right. But I'm not there with my boy as often as I would like to be. And, and you just have to cram so much into that, In that short time, time yeah. that you've got. Understood. You have a similar experience. I do. Yeah, I do. And I think the second or third event that we were at together, I saw you there with both of your boys and I played your son Space Wolves round one of War Games for Warriors two years ago. Uh-huh. That was Garrett, yeah. Yeah. I just thought, while I'm sitting there playing him, I'm thinking like, this would be a dream come true for me <laughs> to have my boy come with me to tournaments. Sure. Because when I have him, I don't go to events. Right. I, I prioritize that that time with him. Well, he's of, still young, though, Yeah, too. he's still, yeah, he's 10. He has some of his own models already, and we've we've played a couple of things, and we'll get into that later, but... 
I guess the very long way of me getting around to this question for you, Lou, is how do you get to be that kind of a hobby dad for your kids? Well, I, I think there's a few things. One, uh, I grew up in a house where uh, my mother had a very strong liberal arts background. I saw, you know, predisposed to artistic things in general. And specifically in the house, we always had paints and brushes and scissors and construction paper and glue and all that stuff was always out. And so now being in a similar situation where I have, you know, an ex-wife, I'm I've, since I've been remarried to a wonderful lady, but, you know, boys that bounce back and forth between homes on the weekends, I still have an open space, an open hobby space in their bedroom. So I've got tables set up, I've got paints out, I've got paint brushes, and it's always there for them, right? So if they want to sit down and hobby, they can do that. And uh, it's hard to, to not be uh, predisposed to being creative in general and not pass that along to the kids. And so, you know, I think uh, having that space available for them kind of help them realize that this is just something that we do and it's something that we enjoy doing together whether it's drawing or painting or putting models together and, and, you know, having good conversation, which I think is something else that uh, in some ways maybe board games, while they might be kind of old school, generally speaking, might be kind of the new school in yeah. some ways, because, yeah. you know, it's when coming you're coming back around from video games, a it little is, bit. it is. And one of the great things about, you know, about participating in a tabletop hobby, and, and that includes the gaming side of the, the war gaming side of it is you can have conversation, right? You can sit there and you'd be painting a model, putting it together, rolling dice on a table, and you can say, hey, how are things at school? How are things with your friends? You know, who's that that girl you're texting or whatever? And you can, you know, you can have, <laughs> oh boy, right? And, you know, and so you can kind of have that, that father-son, father-daughter interaction that maybe they might be a little more guarded about. And so, you know, part of the magic of, of being that hobby dad, I guess, is, is having the environment set up where they can come and participate and feel like it's just part of what we do. And then, you know, as they do it and they enjoy it, then they want to be involved. And I know for my older son's younger brother, Noah, you know, it was a couple of years before he could start coming to the gaming events. And it was always, when can I go? When can I go? When can yeah. I go? When can I go? There's an like, interest there. There is, yeah. absolutely. And, and so... You know, I think sometimes if we let them in too soon, uh, we can kill that motivation. And and, uh, and so, you know, it was, I remember the first time when I got to take both of them to that first tournament. And, you know, like you said, dream come true. Because when you're a kid and you're doing that stuff with your dad, you think about those moments. You yeah. Know, you look forward to it. When yeah. can I do this with my son? And so it's been, it's been awesome. Yeah, I, I remember growing up that accessibility was a big part of it, something that I'm just kind of having a, you know, having an apostrophe, I'm having an epiphany about right now, is one of the things that was so interesting about it for me was that, you know, my dad had his desk. Yeah. And it had one of those push-out drawers. Right. Where you'd, like, push it in and come out a little bit, and then you could pull it out, and it was just like, you know, just basically a piece of paper-sized workstation, which is plenty for a little kid. Sure. And you got, like, five Napoleonic cavalrymen yeah. who... who whose horses need color. <laughs> and I remember just having that option to get in there. And that's something that with my own hobby parenting, I feel like I'm missing right now. Mm -hmm. Of course, I'm in a closet. My desk is in a closet <laughs> right now. You know, sure. Temporary living situation, sure. long story. Yeah. But I think that you know, when I do get a bigger space again, which hopefully won't be before too long, sure. I'm going to build in the idea that I need some space that my boy can sit next to me too. And not space that he has to sit next to me. And right. I think that that part's important. Very important. Uh, yeah. 
but space where he's welcome to sit down next to me. Sure. And and work on his stuff. Talk to me a little bit about gaming at home. Like, do you roll dice with your kids a we lot do. at home? Yeah, we do. And, and not just, you know, war games, but, uh, you know, I've always been a board gamer, one type or another. And, uh, and so we play games. That's one of the things that we look forward to. You know, one of the other games that, that we play, because I, I think it has an aspect of, of chess, but I guess the fallibility of, of human error is Blood Bowl. I really love Blood Bowl, and, and both my boys have become very competent Blood Bowl players as well. And, uh, and I think one of the things that they enjoy just as much as I do about wargaming in general is that, you know, the dice always bring in a factor of uh, improbability that you can't control. Yeah. And so when things go awry, how do you manage that? Right. Yeah. You can have the best played, pl- bless, best, getting my tongue tied here, <laughs> best laid plans and they, they're going to go awry invariably. And so how do yeah. you manage that? And I think that's one of the things that uh, that they've come to really appreciate. I I remember, in fact, it might not have been the tournament that you and I were at uh, up at End Zone, but another one that we did go to where uh, my older boy was in a match and he had just finished painting his uh, his big gunship for the Space Wolves and uh, oh the the Storm Ring yeah the, yeah that's what I'm talking they're about their flyer equivalent with right. the ice cannon on it exactly yeah. right and he and he was so proud of it and it looked great I mean he really did a good job on it and his opponent blew it up turn one. Oh yeah and inevitably and he lost his he lost his mind over the whole thing and so he just went in in true Space Wolf fashion in berserker mode and, <laughs> and got I think he ended up getting tabled. And that was just after winning another match against another guy, which I was so impressed with because I think he was uh, 13 at the time. But anyways, uh, as we were driving home, we always, you know, we're talk about, you know, how did things go? How did mm-hmm. the games go? What was your most enjoyable moment? And, uh, and he caught me off guard because he said my, my favorite moment of this weekend was losing. You know, who, who likes that's to lose? really cool. Nobody likes to yeah. lose. I was like, yeah. what kid is this? Yeah. And so I looked at him and I said, well, tell me more about that. And he said, well, dad, he said, you're always telling us never to lose your temper. And he said, now I understand why. And, and that was really all he said about it. But, you know, at that moment, I remember thinking for all the hours that we spent modeling, all the money that we spent buying models, putting them together, driving to tournaments. Yeah. If that's the only thing that he ever takes away from this experience how much better off in life he's going to be having realized how important it is to keep your cool and reason through things. Right. Yeah. And, and find solutions that are going to be good for you and equitable for all involved. And that was such a powerful moment for me. Just proud that this young man is my son because uh, I definitely am predisposed to anger at times. Mm. I think we all are, but for him to figure that out at his age. Wow. That was yeah. just awesome. And, you know, he'll probably have to learn that lesson over and over again oh, a few sure times. <laughs> but it's so much easier to, it's, it's, it's almost like riding an angry bicycle, yeah. right? Yeah. Where, and, and eventually you get to the point where you celebrate the mistakes. Right. I think that's something that Dungeons and Dragons taught me. And I've mentioned on the show before, I got into that very late. But you have, it's bigger than a D6. You have a bigger potential for success and failure right. in some respects. Yeah. But... Learning to celebrate the failures and turn them into entertainment mm-hmm. because sometimes things just don't go your way, right? <laughs> a lot they, of times they, they don't go your way. <laughs> a lot of times. And being able to accept that with, with grace and yeah. heaven forbid a little humor yep. uh, is a valuable thing Very. I think that uh, kids can learn from from wargaming. I have a, an experience of my own gaming with my son I think was the most successful I've ever done 
doing this with him because my son, he's all, he's all about robots, uh-huh. big stompy robots. And when we went into the Warhammer store for the very first time, it was on, it was on my birthday actually. And he wanted to get into the hobby from, as a birthday present for me, Sure. which was here, dad, buy me some presents, <laughs> <laughs> buy me some models on your birthday. That's, that's awesome. Um, he was about four or five at the time. Sure. And we looked at all of them and I was sure he was going to go Tau because they have the coolest looking robots. Yeah, yeah. Well, what he went for was Space Marines. Really? He he wanted a dreadnought. He thought the dreadnought was really cool. Okay. Of course, because yeah. dreadnoughts. That was, I think, a little bit before or around the same time the Redemptor had come out, but it was still the old Space Marine Star collecting box. Sure. So I just picked that up for him, and he got his collectible shiny cards that he was really excited yeah, about. Yeah. And we went home, and that weekend we built that dreadnought, and I had him help me every as much as he could sure. before he would lose patience because sure. a kid that young. He, he can Short sit there spent. sit there for about 30 minutes max before he gets distracted and wants to go see if you know, grandma's done making the cookies or something, right? Right. But he, he got his dreadnought built. He painted most of it on his own. And then the first little battle that we did was my dad's uh, Wraith Lord and another Wraith Lord against two dreadnoughts, one of my Blood Age dreadnoughts and, and my son's Ultramarine's dreadnought at the time. And that went okay. And then we did an, a Christmas game, and I I did this little scenario where there was a war boss trying to steal Santa's candy from, <laughs> you know, just being just embracing the sure, ceiling with it. Sure. And he he enjoyed that as well. But I think the most powerful gaming experience I had with my son was it was Halloween 2020. Right. And he and I had planned on doing some trick or treating, just at like a. It was like a social distance trick-or-treating sure, thing. Sure. And when you're in a divorce situation, you only got your kid every other year and right. you want to try and make the most of something. Well, two days before Halloween, got a notice from a school that he had been exposed to COVID mm. and that the entire class was going on lockdown. And that meant no more going out. Right? Right. We, we couldn't right. leave anywhere. My wife was pregnant at the time, so she she left to go down to her folks' place to spend some time there because I wanted to be there for my boy sure. and I was willing to accept that possibility. Right, right. And he came over and was disappointed that we didn't get to, to dress up and, and go out. So I just threw out a mat, threw, out, threw some terrain up on it. I got some like little warp vortex things and packed them full of candy and set them <laughs> on the table and turned Love them into it. objectives and had him walk around with his dreadnought uh-huh. and... Uh, break the warp gates gotcha. and every one of them that he broke there was candy underneath right. and he was dressed up in his Halloween costume awesome. for the whole thing awesome and we I just made up the story on the spot about there was this you know evil evil sorcerer that was trapped inside of the big mountain and that he was trying to get free and then it turned out he was mind controlling this inquisitor and like you it just got all yeah, you know yeah. Saturday morning cartoon yeah but he loved it he loved it and like I was almost in tears at the end of it, thinking about how much fun we had. And he was at that point determined to start his own Space Marine chapter sure, now. Sure. Not not just use the blue ones that were on the cover of the box that he got. Right. He wanted to make his own Space Marine chapter. How cool is that? That was themed around the idea of we're building our fortress on this mountain to keep this evil sorcerer contained. <laughs> That's awesome. 
And so that's a thing. Did, that did we, you throw that up on Facebook? I seem to remember that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, yeah. I, I put up a little, like, a mini synopsis and some, some pictures of it. Yeah, I remember And it that. was just really simple. Uh, I think... I used some Age of Sigmar ghost models as as bad guys that would spawn from the different war yeah. points. Just whatever I had on sure, hand and just sure. completely thrown together at the last minute. But it turned into such a powerful experience for him that we were able to bond and create something together. Something right. something that a week before then I had I had no idea that it would happen this way. And forging the narrative at a young age. Yeah. Yeah. Better to forge the narrative than force the narrative, which kind of brings me to the other thing is like when, when you love something, when you, when you're a part of this hobby, we oftentimes can get really excited about it. I mean, you could ask my wife. In, in fact, I, I would, I would wager that just by osmosis, my wife could pass most 40k lore quizzes <laughs> with, not, you know, with a passing grade. Yeah, not surprised. Um, we, we have a we have a joke uh, because we I, I talk about Sanguinius a lot. Sanguinius battled the the greater demon Kabanda, right. but she loves to call him Kabunda. <laughs> so we 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 sometimes we'll just pass each other down the hall and be like Kabunda. And it's like yeah. turned into an inside sure, joke. Sure. But it can be oppressive sometimes. Like sure. I, I know when my wife's at that point where it's like, all right, stop talking about this now. Yeah. So with your kids, because obviously you're passionate about this. You were the hobby track champion the first year of hobby track. Yeah. You you drive for hours to go to tournaments. I do. You care a lot, not not just about your own hobby, but the state of the game itself, you know, volunteering help with events and getting groups of people together, motivating people, being being a leader in the community in that sense. How, how do you know when to, to let off the gas and not force your kids into liking the thing you like? You know, I, I, that's a really good question. Um, I think one of the one of the most important things for me personally as a dad and as a person in general is really respecting choice of other people. Yeah, uh, allowing them to exercise their own personal choice and agency in making decisions. And that's really, really important with children because they're so unique. And I don't want to stifle things that I might not see or they haven't maybe even discovered yet by, by forcing myself or my own opinions on them. However, there's also something to be said for tradition and, you know, in-house culture and things like that as well. And so um, it's a balance, you know. We have real conversations around... Uh, you know, these things. And we enjoy talking about the lore and we enjoy cutting up about the different factions. Who would win in a fight. Uh, yeah, you know, all yeah. stuff like that. And, you know, ironically, and I just, I knew this about my youngest son being a Death Watch player and Xenos Hunter. I knew he was going to be an orc. <laughs> I knew he was going to be an orc player. And, uh, you know, we're, we're good friends with Rich Kilton. Uh, Rich is a well-known orc player in the community as well. And Rich is on my team. And so when we would go over to, you know, do our practice sessions, a lot of times the boys would be with me if I had them for the weekend. And Rich loves exploiting the orcs with anybody he can. And so when he <laughs> yeah. found out my youngest was, yeah. a, was an avid orc player and going to be an orc player, he just I, I loved as much the fact that he had somebody else that he could commiserate with. Sure. But also loved the fact that it was kind of like a knife in the back to dad, too. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah here's, here's a Xenos Hunter player and his son's an orc player, you know. Ah. And so, you know, but it's been it's been great. And so it's fun, you know, watching them use their imagination and not just... You know, when we're rolling dice on the table and my Death Watcher playing his orc army, which would be, you know, a very uh, fluffy uh, opportunity for, you know, forging a narrative again. Right. It's not just 
about rolling the dice and shooting that unit, right? There's got to be an explanation like, okay, well, mm-hmm. what happened to that war pit? And then watching him, you know, oh, dad, he probably got hit in the neck and then his head exploded and it made this gooey mess all over the place, you know? <laughs> and so by allowing them and inviting them to create their own dialogue about what's really going on, I think has helped a lot. And, you know, just as a side note, being a competitive player, I, I worry sometimes about the competitive nature of the game, not from the sake of it being competitive, but can that fun side of the hobby get lost sometimes in the competitive nature of the game? I know I've had that happen. And, and, you know, I always try and approach a game from even in a tournament standpoint, you know, what's going on? How do you want to see the game play? You know, let's have a good time. And and I mean that let's, let's have a good experience, right? Let's have, let's have an enjoyable experience. And so, you know, if you're not having fun doing it, playing the game, you know, being involved in the hobby, then, then your boys, your kids, you know, girl or boy, yeah, uh, they're not going to enjoy it either. And so, you know, you've, you've got to have fun. Ultimately you got to have fun with it. And, and as they, as you do, they will. And I mean, look where you're at. I, I think part of the reason why you're still involved in tabletop gaming is because somewhere along the line, having that experience with your dad, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was fun. It, was, it fun. was, it was. I have so many good memories with my dad having to do with, you know, either preparing for games or building scenarios. We even did scouting activities for our, our local scout troop where we would have them come and we would do, like if, if there was a, like a citizenship and we had to learn history or something like that, my dad would set up a, a battle from the Revolutionary War uh-huh. or from the Civil War. Sure. In fact, I had a birthday party one time where I wanted to do a Civil War battle on my birthday. That's awesome. And I, you know, I set up on, on the Union side and... We had a we had a battle for my birthday. And there was another year that I wanted to play. I, I'd been reading the Sharps Rifle series and uh-huh. watching the TV show. Yeah, and so I wanted to play a group of riflemen in you know the Wellington's British Army. That's awesome. And so we did that, and all of that happened because my dad, and even to this day, he loves to share and create mm-hmm. with us. He right. does that with me still. He just built me this amazing set of Bryce Canyon themed terrain. Oh, wow. That has a, like a little crossover with Petra. Oh my goodness. So it's got, it's this full like rocky cliff set sure. that has a removable door with a reversible face. So there's wow. a rocky face and the door face that has rooms on the inside and, you know, desert themed plants and things in this whole set. And it was, it was something I said, Hey dad, I had this idea. Do you think you could build something like this? And he was like, Ooh, and he completely exceeded my expectations <laughs> for it. I thought, you know, Oh, we'll have this cool sure. little piece with a cliff face on sure. it. And the, the little, little Warhammer ruins on the front. It'll be fine. And then he turns it into this massive creation that has just blown me away. And even even as a grown man in my 30s right now, I'm giddy thinking about yeah, it. Yeah. And it means so much to me that he put the time and the effort into sure. the, into doing that. So what do you do then, Lou? And I and preface this with with you know my own kid. He he loves YouTube. He loves playing games like Minecraft. And this is kind of like this is what people worry that is going to be the hobby killer is electronics, video games, la di da di da. But you also still want to enjoy the time and, and frankly, sure. the ton of investment that goes into doing Warhammer with your kids. But when their interests veer 
somewhere else? Like, do you, what experience do you have with that? And, and what are you, what are you hoping, what, what are you hoping will happen? I guess. You know, that's a great question. And I, I think I've mentioned to you before, we're kind of going through that right now with my oldest. He's kind of hit a dry spell with 40K right now, but you know, and that's fine. You know, you, you don't want to, you know, force it. I think that's a mistake. I think that uh, you can create some negative feelings around it if you do that. But uh, he is a very competent uh, Apex player right now. Apex is a is a big video game. Oh, Apex Legends? Oh, is yeah. That the one? oh, yeah. And he is really, really, really good at it. Really good at it. I'm expecting him to do something with it right now. But you can't take away, and, and, I, and I think you got to have a little bit of faith here. Hmm. You can't take away the experience that we've had together, building models, painting models, talking about life while we're doing those things, hitting the road, going to tournaments and having those experiences. Nothing will replace that ever. And even though he's kind of on this video game kick right now, I expect that at some point in time, he's going to realize how valuable that time together was. And and I think that he'll come back to it. Uh, my younger son is still involved and uh we still do you know other smaller games blood bowl we've been playing kill team they enjoy playing kill team together but uh, for him 40k is kind of on the hiatus right now and, and yeah. that's okay that's okay you know the time that we've done it has been fantastic i expect in the future we'll come back around to it again and so you know we're all we all had dry spells i mean you know i've been painting since i'm since i was 12 years old i just turned 52 this year so I've been painting for 40 years. <laughs> I've hit my dry spells painting. It's going to happen. But I can tell you unequivocally, uh, having quote unquote quit board gaming a few times in my life, right. it never happens. It never happens. Um, I've always had models, uh, even when I quote unquote quit a couple of times. And I did take a brief uh, hiatus from 40K from 5th and part of 6th edition. And I understand 5th was a great edition, didn't play through it. You know, but here I am, and uh, you just you just can't get it out of your blood. It's always good. It's always it's always going to be there. I, I like what you said about those memories are always going to be there. Yeah. Because even if even if your your boy never comes back to Warhammer, you can believe that he will look back on the time you spent together as something precious. And every time he sees something that reminds him of that, right, he's going to think back on that. Even as even as an adult, yeah. and I think that that's the thing that we as as parents, as we see our kids get into different hobbies, hobbies that didn't exist when we were kids. Oh, for sure. Granted, video games existed when I was a kid, but not like they do now. <laughs> no, nobody was was doing esports uh, when I was when I was growing up playing, you know, uh, regular Nintendo, original Nintendo games and things like that. Oh, we and, did. and the Atari stuff before then. My esports was uh, going to Jason's house when I was sixteen, and the. 486 Commodore. You know, oh, the Commodore. Uh -oh. Taking 10 minutes to boot up and you got 30 minutes of time before you got to be home, right? And yeah, and yeah. Uh, we played 20 minutes on this very simplistic Olympic diving game. That yeah. was, that was so, they existed just not anywhere close to oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> where yeah. they are now. No one's streaming <laughs> it, talking about it 24 seven. It's, no. it's, it's a whole different thing. Yeah. And I think that if we, if we try to make them love it and if we resent them for leaving it, yeah. we're actually going to undo all the good Absolutely. that we yeah. did Absolutely. by by enjoying the time spent together. So I guess so far as this conversation goes and so far as the parenting conversation in the hobby goes, 
if I were to t- have some takeaways from, from our conversation, this is what I would, you know, this is the too long, didn't listen part of it is one, make space for your kids. Yes, absolutely. Even if they don't use it, have the space there so that they can be there. Because even even if they don't use that space to work on hobby, maybe they're sitting there and they're watching their iPad, but they're still spending time with you. Right. And that still gives you all those opportunities to show interest in what they're doing. Yes. And to have those small gestures of affection and love and to just be around each other. So do that. Second, I would say teach them how to lose with grace. Mm. Yeah. You know, sportsmanship. Yeah. Right? And I believe that sportsmanship in Warhammer as a kid can be just as rewarding as sportsmanship in physical activities as, as a kid. 100%. The lessons are the same. They're just skins that are put on a different, a different avatar. So, and after that, I would say, don't resent your kids for leaving. Treasure the time that you had doing that with them. Yes. Uh, is there anything else that you would like to, to add on to that? One of the things that uh, we're, we're dealing with is a lot of social change right now. Uh, we're dealing with a lot of cultural shifts that I think maybe we're not even tracking to some degree. Um, we are definitely in the age of technology. All of our kids are digital natives. Uh, many of us that are having this conversation now or, or listening to this conversation are dim- digital immigrants by classification. And so, you know, the technology aspect of life is not going to go away. It's going to become more prolific. I think it's going to become more intrusive. And I think all the more reason why uh, it's important to have this space available to interact face-to-face in vivo with, you know, tabletop gaming or war gaming. And uh, and I think the aspect of having uh, the ability to think critically, which is something that is a byproduct of, of these types of games and, and dealing with difficult things that might be challenging in the middle of a game when your dice rolls bad. And like you said, you have one of those catastrophic oh, moments yeah. where things, oh, yeah. uh, I remember one of my tournaments early on going to, and I got the alpha strike and I'm like, Oh buddy, it's on. <laughs> and I rolled once for every single one of my heavy weapons. Mm. My multi-melt on my land speeder blew up it flew in a different direction, hit my predator, blew my predator up. And I mean, I was just, it was like, how do you recover from that? Right. Yeah. And my opponent looked at me in total disbelief, and he was like, "I almost feel bad for you." <laughs> but you know, this isn't what I signed no, up for. No, no, not at all. But you know, better to have those moments together when you have teachable opportunities than to have them go out and experience that in real life and maybe not even recover from it, right? Yeah. And I think we're seeing a lot of that in society today where uh, bad choices and bad circumstances come together and then we have tragic uh, effects. And so I don't think gaming is going to go away. Uh, I don't think tabletop gaming is going to go away. And so just uh, put a petition out there to, like you said, make space for it and uh, and welcome those opportunities and, and look for those interactions because they're going to be precious. Yeah, I, I tell you, I, I treasure that Halloween game with my boy. So... I think uh, I think there's opportunities for everybody, and hopefully we can continue to make those opportunities not not just with our kids but with each other and sure. with the community and and build something stronger at the end of it yeah. and use the game as as a vehicle for that. So this has been an awesome conversation. I love it, Chris. Thank you, and thank you for for agreeing. I mean, Lou drove hours to be up here to to talk to me. So a big thank you. 
to, for making making the effort, Happy hopefully it. making it worth your time. Absolutely. We'll, we'll roll some dice. Uh, I'm sure in the show recap, you'll you'll hear me talk about some of those disastrous <laughs> moments uh, as we as we get going. But thanks, Lou. Thank you so much. Great Chris. talk. Appreciate you. Cheers. Hey, tough luck tonight, buddy. Yeah, tough new hotness, more like it. <laughs> sure, pal. Same time next week? Sure. See ya. <sighs> what am I gonna do about the new hotness? Commando, we need to talk. Yeah, Kato Sicarius. No, it is I, Robute Gilliman, and we need to talk about your performance tonight. Aw, oh, come on, Robute. He's playing the new hotness. What can I do? Well, the Codex says to use the terrain to your advantage, not leaving your whole army set up in the open. But, Rabute, the best I can do is this packing styrofoam that came with my dad's TV. Heresy! You can do better than that. Buy some MDF terrain from Frontline Gaming. Frontline Gaming? Isn't that that company run by the guy who sounds like he has strep throat all the time? Hey, bro, not cool. Silence! Don't get distracted. This is how you forgot to bring in your reserves. But, Rabute, I don't even know what MDF means. It's wood cut with last guns or something. It's not important. It's quality, durable terrain made for all modes of play with different themes like desert, ruined city, industrial, aliens, and more. But I hate painting terrain. It's boring. Never fear. Frontline Gaming has painting services as well. You're right, Lord Gilliman. I should order some. But how do I do that? Where do I start? Go to www.frontlinegaming.org to find out more about terrain, miniatures, painting services, hobby articles, and events. Gee, thanks, Rabute. Any more advice for your loyal force commander? Not now, Commander. I have to go back and check on Marnius. Last time I was gone this long, the 500 worlds became the 375. Go ahead and check out www.frontlinegaming.org. Tell them the Chief Librarian sent you. Welcome, everyone, back into the Librarius, and here we are going to now speak about World Spirits. Now, the stuff that I'm going to be talking about so far as World Spirits is concerned comes mostly from the Path of the Warrior novel, and I recommend, of course, if you are interested in reading any of the sources that I'm going to cite in this section, or if you are concerned about spoilers at all, then this is probably a good place for you to stop, skip, come back to after you've done some reading. So consider this your spoiler warning for anything and everything concerning world spirits. Also going to put a general disclaimer out there so far as canon versus theory. There's going to be a bit of theory crafting in this section and I don't know if I'm right or wrong and I don't know that it matters if I'm right or wrong. I'm just interested in engaging with 
world spirits as an idea. And so I will be citing sources from within the fiction, but also I will be doing some speculation. So don't take anything I say necessarily as absolute canon, though if you like the idea and feel like using it, I say go for it. So what is a world spirit? World spirits are described as spiritual energy that's coalesced into a consciousness comprised of mostly psychic energy. And so far as Canon 40K is concerned, as listed in the Path of the Eldar book, it serves as the heart of the maiden worlds of the Exodite Eldari peoples. Exodites are not a model range that's supported by Warhammer 40K right now. So for those of you who don't know already, Exodites are basically if space elves rode dinosaurs and didn't travel around space. Eldar lore says that when an Eldari dies, they go either into an infinity circuit if they're part of the craft world, or they are devoured by she who thirsts, otherwise known as the chaos god Slanesh, who was birthed by the depravity of the Eldar race long before the rise of humanity as a power in the galaxy. Much like the infinity circuits that the Craftworld Eldari utilize to escape from the trap of Slanesh, the world spirits tend to capture the souls of the Exodites who die upon them. And while the spirit is psychically aware and active, it does have sort of a physical nexus where it's marked out by like obelisk, or a circle of stones, and it is referred to as a world shrine. And these are scattered around the Exodites' worlds, and they're all creative, more or less, from the sort of gemstone, psychoactive, crystalline substance that I imagine most of the soul gems of the craft world Eldar come from, though I do believe a large number of those do end up coming from their worlds lost in the warp, I believe that's one of the reasons that they use Wraith Knights to sort of travel through the webway to go into the lost worlds that are stuck in the Eye of Terror and to gather some of these stones so they can bring them back to the craft world for use in implantation to their technology integration to the Infinity Circuit and however else they plan to use them. Now, as the world spirit is sentient, it can be communicated with and According to the Path of the Warrior novel, anybody with a psychic or spiritual energy can connect and speak with the world spirit, though this is typically done by farseers or those among the Exodites that consider themselves to be farseers. It's one of those sort of cast roles that are determined by the very intricate and unknowable Eldari society. Now, this would be a very short section if I just went by that description. This segment would more or less end right now because officially the references to world spirits within Canon 40K stop there. However, there are some interesting connections and some interesting ideas that have to do with world spirits that also tie into some of the other parts of Warhammer 40K that I think are worth looking at and maybe considering as a possibility that other world spirits exist and that they have power. So the first example I would like to point to would have to be Fenris. 
Fenris is the home planet of the Space Wolves, and it is a planet that was more or less intentionally created as a playground slash resort slash experiment by some human during the Dark Age of Technology who really wanted to LARP Viking stories on just his own custom planet. That is a very low-tech way of describing what what is a very complicated thing. But the idea and the joke of there are no wolves on Fenris comes from the idea that nothing on Fenris realistically should have happened. Everything that came about on Fenris, all of the trolls, the giant wolves, the krakens, la-di-da-di-da, is hinted at as being deliberately crafted to be that way. That the world itself, whatever life it could have sustained on its own, would have been much different had it not been for the interference of some plucky humans who were very obsessed with Viking mythology. And having my own deep interest in that because of my own personal heritage, I can kind of understand why somebody would be like, you know what? What if we just made the legends of the sagas into a real planet? Be- just because we can, you know, the, the universe is our, is our oyster, is our playground. Let's make a mythology planet. That being said, what does that have to do with having a world spirit? Well, this is what I'm thinking. Back during the Great Crusade, the emperor issued an edict. It's called the Edict of Nikea, and it was where he basically told all of the Space Marine Legions to disband their librarious elements in their legions, to stop practicing warp powers as such, and to basically punish Magnus the Red for his extreme misuse of the power of the warp. I would recommend, if you are interested in a more detailed account of that, to read the Prospero Burns book, to read A Thousand Suns, and to get kind of the different perspectives on the issue from both sides of that. It's interesting because both novels, I believe, were written at the same time, if I understand correctly. So while the author was writing one, he was also writing the other from the other perspective. It creates kind of an interesting, I don't know if you would call it a dialogue, but the the issue at hand is even after this edict of Nikea, an edict which, by the way, the Thousand Suns broke soon after, Magnus himself causing such a huge problem that it had a tremendous effect on the heresy that followed, It was Lehman Russ and the Space Wolves from Fenris who were sent to punish him. And Lehman Russ, of course, didn't leave to go punish Magnus without bringing his rune priests along. Rune priests are basically psychers. And for whatever reason, Lehman Russ and his rune priests were not censured in the same manner as the Thousand Sons for the continued use of What to anybody else in the universe looks like psychic abilities. Now, the justification that the rune priests used as their reason that they could do that and the Thousand Sons could not was that they did not draw upon the powers of the warp and that it was the powers of the warp that the emperor had commanded people not to use. Instead, they drew upon the power of Fenris itself. To any of us, that would seem like a pretty lame excuse. Of course, they use the warp. Of course, they channel the power of the great ocean the same as the Thousand Suns do. But maybe they don't. 
Throughout the Horus Heresy, and of course in several of the Space Wolves novels, the difference between the powers drawn upon by the Rune Priests and those of regular psychers, there is a difference there. And I think that the difference is ambiguous enough for it to seem like it could be either way. I imagine that's written deliberately just to keep us guessing and frustrated. Congratulations, it's working. Nevertheless, when Lehman Russ steps into the warp, as it were, during the Wolfsbane novel and goes on a parallel sort of vision quest that just so happens to almost exactly mimic one of the great Norse myths involving Thor and Loki traveling to Utgard Loki's castle. He undertakes a series of challenges, has to deal with some prophetic visions and whatnot, and everything just has a different feel to it. Now, you could argue, of course, that this is just a warp shaping around the expectations and the consciousness of Lehman Russ and the Rune Priests, but what if Fenris itself had a spirit. What if that spirit, like the Eldar Maiden World world spirits, had some kind of personality that could be communicated with? What if the psychic energy of this world could be harnessed and had a will of its own? If I had to choose between the rune priests just use the warp and their sneaky devils trying to get around all of the problems that the other psychers had and there actually is something special about Fenris and it may have a world spirit, I find the second answer to be a bit more interesting as a lore junkie. That said, now you're looking at me thinking, okay, so, alright, right now in canon, only the Eldari have world spirits because it's on Eldari maiden worlds only. And so far, the only other example you can come up with is Fenris, and Fenris is not likely to be an Eldari maiden world. Why? Because why would the Eldari want to create a world that looked like human mythology? I don't think that they would. So what are some other examples of world spirits in the lore that you could possibly draw from? Or at least from the ideas of entities in the warp that are able to bring in spirits and exert consciousness and spiritual energy from within the warp. There's a couple other human examples that come to mind. The first example of course, and you would be amazed that it took me three episodes to geek out about this, but it has to do with the one, the only, the Ninth Legiones Astartes, the Blood Angels. Yes, I'm finally talking about some Blood Angels lore, and you guys should be grateful, I'm just going to say it, that it took me this long to get to it. I'm trying to be good, okay? Not trying to just gush about Blood Angels all the time and be the Blood Angel, Blood Angel-y show. Anyway. This is actually relevant to this conversation, so I'm bringing it in, and I'm not sorry. The Darkness in the Blood novel was very eye-opening to me for a variety of reasons. Building off of the climax of the Devastation of Ball book, where you have Dante at the very end receiving some kind of vision from Sanguinius that it's not yet time for him to find his rest, that he still needs to work, speaking with the spirit of his father, and surviving where he shouldn't yet again. In Darkness in the Blood, there is a series of chapters involving Mephiston's consciousness leaving his body as it undergoes the transformation to a Primaris Marine. This transformation, of course, is triggered by 
the unleashing of his psychic powers in a way that his body seemingly can no longer contain, and that without this procedure, there's a chance that he might be taken over by his own incredible powers. While separated from his body, Mephiston is taken around the ball system, starting first in the warp, in an area that looks like the place where he grew up, wearing the clothes and the tokens of the tribe that he was raised in. There, he meets with the spirit of the witch, I guess you could say. It was the magical elder who noticed the gift in young Calisterius and trained him in its use prior to his selection as a space marine. After a very enigmatic conversation, Mephiston journeys into a cave, which in any dream sequence, of course, indicates danger, mystery, and as he travels through this cave, reliving moments of his life, seeing his life from many different angles, he comes to a place where above him in the sky, a golden angel and a black angel battle. There is a shrine or a circle of stones there, and this is obviously the planetary surface of Baal itself. So for those of you who are not familiar with it, Baal has the main planet and it has two moons. During the Dark Age of Technology, this was the home of a human colony that was very successful. Baal itself wasn't as occupied as its moons were, and the moons were basically technological verdant paradises. One of the moons had an extensive labyrinthine system of beautiful space stations around it that they called you know, more or less a, a necklace, and it resembled this beautiful adornment around this moon. The legend goes that the other moon, jealous of this beautiful necklace, launched a war against the other sometime during the Dark Age of Technology, at least towards the end, and the weapons that they unleashed on each other turned both moons into irradiated, destroyed wastelands. The human survivors were forced to travel in caravans and live in tribes, and it was basically Mad Max, only more radiation, giant fire scorpions, and sentient water that sucks you dry. As Mephiston approaches this shrine on the surface of Baal, a figure forms before him. This figure, made of blood, proceeds to speak to Mephiston about a variety of things, including the past of Baal and its moons. So I will read an excerpt of this right here for you. The bloody angel nodded. What do you see in the sky? I see two angels at war, one of gold and one of darkness. They have been at war forever, said the figure, even before your kind came to Baal. Those who dwelled here in distant epochs, they knew the angels of gold and black though they did not see them as you see them. He gestured at a space between two of the outer pillars. An image appeared there, presenting Mephiston with a vision of spindly Xenos, heavily robed and bedecked in bloodstone, laboring to raise monuments long since ground to dust. And there, where millions of years later men lived in brief paradise upon Baal Indicus and Baal Fortunata, the first men here knew the angels too, but refused to believe they existed until times changed and they let the black angel in. Mephiston looked through the phantasmal angels. 
Both moons were present in the sky. Both were living. Bal Secundus sparkled with blue-green oceans. Bal Primus was drier, mottled with biomes of soft greens and grays. Around Primus was a complex of orbital stations so extensive and radiant it resembled a necklace. The moons no longer bear those names, said Mephiston. Names come and go. Those names became corrupted in form. In time they will be forgotten completely, as will your species. Another race, then another, then another, will come and uncover the things left behind in days long dead, and wonder what manner of hand shaped them. The bloody angel turned its attention back to Mephiston. Or the universe will fall to chaos, and yours will be the last of creation's children, and no more beings will choose their path twixt grace and rage, but all will be madness, and pandemonium will reign. So I find it interesting on the subject of spirits, and world spirits in particular, that Mephiston is taken to a place that has pillars, that there are gemstones that are on these ancient Xenos that built these shrines, and that during the course of this conversation, there are three apparitions. One is a bloody angel in front of Mephiston, and then there is, of course, the gold and the black angels. One is the Sanguinor, and one is simply called the black angel. And behind them, as they fight transparently in the sky above, are images of the two moons. So here we have a red angel on the red main planet and two different angels who I believe represent the spirits of the two moons. Now the personalities of these different spirits, you have this almost neutral, enigmatic, central planet, and then the moons represent two extremes of behavior. Mephiston, a being not unlike a farseer in incredible psychic strength, is communing with these spirits. Spirits which have wills and desires of their own. Sounds to me a lot like a world spirit, but what do I know? Finally, the last example I would like to talk about has to do with Legio Titanicus. In the Titan Death novel, at the very end, one of the main princeps of the Legio that we follow around eventually passes away. And as her spirit travels into the warp, we get to watch her as she is confronted with just the awfulness that is the Immaterium right now. Her idyllic paradise of a home is shattered as the madness of the warp comes to consume her and rip her soul to pieces. In the last second, a golden, pure, powerful light saves her, and she's brought into the embrace of a warp entity an entity that is implied to represent the spirit of the Legio. It manifests itself as a giant titan, brings her into itself, and traverses the warp in opposition to the powers of chaos. Now this isn't a world spirit per se, maybe more like a warp spirit, but it is a representation of what the warp is when it isn't subject to the nightmares of the chaos powers. And at this point, I'd like to have another quote from this Darkness in the Blood novel, and this will be much shorter than the last one. And this is a continuation of the conversation between Mephiston and this spirit. The warp itself is not evil, 
Always remember that, Mephiston. It is corrupted, but it contains everything, and that includes good as well as evil. It includes you. So from that, if I'm, you know, I've, I very much have my theory crafting hat on right now, but to me, that seems to indicate that not only do the powers of the warp not have complete dominion over everything in the warp, which is something that we kind of take for granted in the Warhammer 40k universe, but that there are isolated pockets of good in the warp. Things that reflect the good that's acted out in the material plane, much like the chaos gods are perverted reflections of the evil desires acted out in the material plane. Now, I have a whole philosophy series that talks about whether good could exist in 40K. And if you are interested in continuing that conversation, I would suggest going over to FrontlineGaming.org and looking up my philosophy series there. Because if I were to go into that now, we'd be here for the next several hours. But I bring this up because it opens up some interesting narrative possibilities that we can incorporate into our campaigns and the stories that we tell with our crusade armies. If you are building a custom chapter like Ricky did when he talked about his crusade force in episode two, one of the things you could think about so far as world building goes is, does your faction reside on a planet or not? If it doesn't, does the crusade campaign take place on a planet? What would that planet look like? And if that planet had a world spirit, how would it behave? Would the spirit be reflective of the environment? Would it be reflective of the people who have lived there? How long have they lived there? What does your faction stand to gain from pursuing the power of this world spirit? Could your farseer communicate with the spirit of a lost maiden world that has been corrupted by human presence? Or does a foul sorcerer of chaos seek to plunder and take for himself the power gathered in shrines across a maiden world to absorb and use as the catalyst for his apotheosis into a demon prince, the collected souls and psychic energy of the people of this world who have died over the course of centuries or millennia. In the age of the Cicatrix Maledictum, where there is a giant gap between the somewhat more orderly half of the Imperium or the galaxy and the less orderly half. Now, while Dante is struggling to pick up the pieces of the crumbling and disorganized resistance against chaos on that side of the Cicatrix Maledictum, what sort of pocket empires would be showing up there? Would there be human empires that moved past the belief in the emperor, believing that he abandoned them? Would world spirits be influencing their populations during the psychic awakening to manifest new powers or new desires? What are the kinds of relationships, religions, or cultures that would pop up as the result of the absence of the heavy-handed imperial tyranny? That's one of the things that world spirits could offer you as a, an inspiration for your narrative campaigns or for whatever fiction you would like to create, world-building that you would like to create for your custom faction. Now, I'm sure that I missed several other examples or references to things that could represent world spirits and other parts of Warhammer fiction, and if you have one that you would like to add to the pile, I would love to hear about it. And please, if you comment on, on the YouTube video, 
or if you go over to my Facebook page to comment on the episode or to send me a message, just let me know where you found the information. If there was some book or another that makes you think like what point me at something that I can read and get my hands on, because I'd love to explore this topic a little bit more. So thank you for joining me as we discussed world spirits and hopefully gave you some interesting ideas for your stories and narrative campaigns. Thank you, everyone, for joining me on that wonderful journey. Thanks again to Lou, who himself took a wonderful journey, to come up and speak to me about parenting in the hobby. To wrap up this episode, I'm going to be putting up just some pictures and some short little video clips that I recorded for my game with Lou. We played a match play game, and we just kind of took our time trying to focus on increasing mastery. I, of course, need to learn the rules more and more all the time. I have to stay fresh because I do all the judging. And then Lou, of course, very dedicated to playing tight, fair games and being the great sportsman that he is, keeps trying to find new and interesting ways to keep himself on track, to remember different rules, the nuances of interactions, and both of us continually fighting off edition bleed. <laughs> My general summary of the game is it was a match play game. We, I, I believe I rolled a 32. We were playing on table quarters. And I have some video that will show our army lists and showcase some of the characters. I managed to edge out the win against Lou, but it could have gone either way. And that's where I like games to be. Kept me engaged the whole time. And it was a perfect example of all of the different things that I love about Warhammer. Having a good person over being able to share time, my home, and commiserate with friends. So far as the next episode is concerned, I am trying to work out the schedules so that we can actually do our session zero. And I'm imagining that that will take up the bulk of next week's episode. Just because there's four of us, we all have our warlords, we all have our stories, we have our explanation of the game, we'll be setting up expectations, discussing, doing kind of a roundtable conversation about the different things we want to get out of the game and the different things that we want to be flexible on questions that we want to have answered and I'm hoping to use it as a good example of how you can conduct a similar sort of session zero for your campaigns getting groups of gamers together and I do recommend starting small you can start as small as you want with two players three or four players I think is ideal because odd numbers it can get a little bit challenging to get games in or one player will get more games, more experience, things get a little bit out of hand. But if everybody has somebody that they can battle, I think it'll work better. I'll also be working a little bit on sprucing up the rule set and maybe having a copy of that that I'd be willing to share with people. My first priority, of course, is making it easy to read and understandable and usable for everybody who's actually playing in the campaign. So that'll come first. Nonetheless, I expect that we'll have a good time. It's a good group of guys that I've got here to play with. Uh, so far as other content on the docket, I have some hobby related content, some painter related content. 
that I'd like to bring on to the show, but I just need to do all of the logistics surrounding that. And of course, there is the LVTT coming up, which might disrupt the release schedule somewhat. I'll keep you guys posted on that. If you'd like updates on the show or things that I'm working on, if you'd like to follow along with my new Grey Knight project, check me out at facebook.com slash brothercaptainmorgan. That's where I post most of my photo updates about the projects and things that I'm working on. It's also a good place to send me feedback and ideas. If there is a lore topic that you'd like me to stick my nose into and discuss on the show, feel free to let me know there. That's the best place to send me that kind of stuff. So I'll keep this outro pretty short and sweet, and I will let you enjoy some of the pictures and video that I took for my game with Lou as we close out the show. Make sure that you don't forget your library card for your next visit to the Librarius. Hey, you. Yes, you. Right there. You are listening to the Frontline Gaming Network. So what does that mean? That means that you have access to a bunch of different and interesting shows. Right now, I'm listening to a lot of Signals from the Frontline because who has time nowadays to follow on your own and get all of the latest news in the gaming hobby? It is streamed every Wednesday, and I never catch it for the stream, but I do catch it later. I especially enjoy Kicker's commentary. He is 40k Hype Man USA, and I challenge anyone, I dare you, to try and prove me wrong or to upstage the hype that is Kicker Kalosdi. So, with my recommendation in hand, go and listen to Signals from the Frontline on the Frontline Gaming Network. So, Lou, this is your warlord, and you, when did you make this guy? Uh, gosh, I think I made him at the beginning of 7th edition, so he's been around for a long time. And you modeled him to be a Uriel Ventress. Yeah, that was, so when I first learned about Uriel Ventress and what a cool cat he was, uh, being from the Ultramarines chapter and coming into the Death Watch largely out of penance, which is unusual for the Ultramarines because they give their tithe as a, an honorable nod to you know, their obligation, but uh, he kind of had a, a fallout with Gilliman, and so Gilliman was like, you're gonna go think about your... Gilliman or Calgar? Gilliman. Oh, Ventress had a fallout with Gilliman, huh? Yeah, well, by way of Calgar. His, his lack of adherence to the Codex uh, found him uh, being seconded to the watch, and then yeah, okay. through uh, some interesting journeys and he's got a sergeant Pacinius Lysane that uh, always accompanies him around but uh, he, he thinks outside the box and uh, he's a death watch captain yeah. so he's your warlord then he's my warlord what do you expect uh, what do you expect him to do does he have any relics what's his warlord trade what you got he's got the teeth of terror on him uh, and he's basically there to bark commands and hold down the center of the battlefield and uh, he's uh you know, more of a token, got to have an HQ slot, and he's a good one to fill up for cheap points, and so he's there to do his job. Right, oh. All right, so some of you may know that Lou likes to make models that have a history, either with an opponent that he's played with or against, or an experience he's had on the table. So this is one of those. Lou, tell us a little bit about this guy. So this guy, uh, originally, I've, I've got another model for him now, but this is Atlas Fellhand. He's actually a chapter champion for the Death Watch. Uh, he is a space wolf. He's considered to be very hot-headed and not a very good student and even a worse teacher. Um, and so he was seconded to the Watch because of his 
constant arguments with his wolf pack leader in the Space Wolves and they're like, oh, we're going to have you go somewhere else so you can think about what it is that you're doing wrong. And he ended up, because he's so good at hand-to-hand -hand fighting and he's got a history of killing multiple orcs, uh, the Death Watch was like, you know, you're really good at what you do and you're really good at doing it alone, so you're going to be our chapter champion. So it kind of backfired in a way. <laughs> but uh, that's that model right there. And is this inspired from a, a book story or, or just something that you came up with? Or <clears throat> No, this is actually uh, a book story from the Black Library, uh, one of those short stories. Um, a lot of the characters that I model into the army that aren't modeled after an opponent that I've played in a tournament, uh, I try and find a backstory on that's actually been written uh, either in a codex or, you know, in one of the Black Library books, and so he's, he's one of those. Right. Very cool. I'm going to do a quick pan over to your whole army here. So this is what Lou's got playing a 2,000-point match point uh, game here. A matched play game, I should say. And I see a lot of Melta, unsurprisingly. Some Incursors, some Angry Terminator Boys, some Bikes, a Whirlwind, and a Drop Pod. So I'm expecting something to die on Lou's first turn. We'll have to see exactly what that is. But uh, Lou has a great army. It's no secret as to why he was Hobby Track Champion for year one. And uh, it's going to be real fun to play against him. Okay, so for my Warlord, I have a Blood Angels Captain with Jump Pack and a Relic Blade. And he is wearing the Indominus Armor for his Relic. And uh, he, I, I use a 30k model. This is the 30k Praetor. And I, of course, model it with wings. Now, most of my winged models are white-winged, but I do have a couple exceptions, and this guy is one of them. He has such a legacy of destruction in 30k that uh, his wings are stained black with the ash of his enemies. And he wields, in 30k, a blade of perdition, which is why his weapon looks like it's a little bit flamey on the tip. He has a personal herald, who is a an ancient model. He's not making an appearance in this game, because ancients in 40k right now uh, Let's just say that uh, it's getting a little old how hard to use they are, but uh, he, his ancient is called the Ashfoot. And the, the deal was when this banner bearer would land on a planet during the Great Crusade that he had two boots that were colored differently. One was black and sooty and one was clean and red. And depending on how the negotiations went, as soon as he returned from the planet or from the negotiations, the first step that he would take out of his ship onto the deck of the battle barge would indicate whether they were going to war or whether diplomacy had prevailed. So he was called the Ashfoot because when he would step off with his black ash-colored foot grieve, onto the deck, that meant it was time to turn the world to ash in, with war. And uh, this was the policy that this captain enacted. So that's that's who my warlord will be for my game with Lou. So to act as a support for the warlord and the spiritual strength of the company off to war, 
This is the chaplain who, as of yet, has no name. He's still fairly new to my armor, or army, rather. But uh, he, his title will be the Bell Ringer. I have modeled his Crozius to be in the shape of a mighty bell, you know, which also has a vaguely chalice shape to it, which fits well with the Blood Angel's theme. But yes, this is the, uh, he carries a, a shroud with him and that's gonna work into the story that I'm building for him. He is like less than two weeks old, this guy. I'm still learning the ropes with this bike chaplain, but perhaps he will make a name for himself today. Do a quick once-over for my army. I've got a unit of five Blade Guard veterans. I've got a Whirlwind. This is a Scorpius that will be used as a regular Whirlwind this time around. See if I like it enough to actually change the, the head. Uh, I've got two units of five Incursors, a unit of five Intercessors. I've got some Inceptors, some Eliminators. I've got my Redemptor Dreadnought. I've got a unit of five Assault Terminators, Thunder Hammer Storm Shields on four of them, and Lightning Claws on one of them. A unit of seven Sanguinary Guard, my Captain, my Chaplain, my Sanguinary Priest, right there. So that's my army. Let's see if it can weather the Death Watch Blistering Inferno. So I'll do some brief commentary on some of the slides here as you see them. Right here I have in one of the corners some infiltrated incursors. Now I could have put them right on top of that objective, but you can't score objectives turn one. And they were staring down the barrel of some Thunderhammer, Stormshield, Vanguard veterans, and a Lightning Claw Terminator, and a bike, and I knew that if I set them there they would die. Covering them from above was this unit of Eliminators up in this tower. They did a pretty good job the whole game of just giving Lou something to worry about and the three damaged last fusils were actually a threat to both terminators and bikers who would be needing to take saves so they actually ended up being pretty clutch i set up the majority of my army in my my corner and created a loose screen with the redemptor dreadnought the blade guard veterans and the bike chaplain just to kind of give myself some space with some incursors on the other side of those crates on the left i felt comfortable having the bike chaplain out that far because i knew that he would have to go up and over on his charge distance in most cases so uh, this was Lou's deployment he had a squad of 10 of his death watch kill team and then he had several squads of five just kind of lined up right there with his characters his apothecary to give the feel no pains and he was basically going to charge up the middle and try and camp down on the middle as much as he could. He had his, another kill team that was going to redeploy via teleport homers and then his own whirlwind in the very, very back. We both used the whirlwinds. I feel like they were they were very important. I, that stratagem that makes units fight last and being able to just reach out and touch somebody while keeping yourself safe and dealing damage, that's actually not too bad. It was my first time testing it with mine. So far as the battle, um, oh, and this is that unit uh, that was threatening my incursors on the other side. And they wanted to get over to that objective, and they wanted to basically uh, raise banners on it as quickly as possible.
So I got the first turn. I was able to move my incursors up and supported by the chaplain's litany that allowed for a plus two to charge. They managed to get in on losing cursors that he put up in this corner. Unfortunately, despite my advantage in hand-to-hand -hand combat, the dice were not with me. Lou managed to make a bunch of saves. I failed a bunch of wounds. And he ended up hurting me worse than I hurt him when I charged him. So that was embarrassing. But hey, we made the most of it. And I managed to push him off of that objective. And held it down with the survivors of that unit. And the Dreadnought climbed on top of these things and uh, used the line of sight that it gave him to shoot at the big squad of 10, the, the kill team of 10. That ended up doing enough damage to kill five of them, even with the, the storm shield saves. Lou was unfortunately pretty unlucky, failing, I believe, all three of those storm shield saves without saving one. So that was kind of a bummer for him, but I only knocked out five of the Marines. Again, I knowing that I would be in range of charging and needing to get engaged in all fronts, I moved these guys back to the corner, and I just planned on redeploying them using the stratagem that allows you to take a Phobos unit that's far enough away from enemies off the, off the table and put them into strategic reserves. So this helped me score two points that turn from engage in all fronts. And that tactical flexibility of these Phobos guys is what really sells them above scouts aside from just the awfulness that is scouts being in an elite slot right now it just makes no sense to me so with Lou's turn starting uh, in his movement phase he moved his bike chaplain and his captain up quite a bit if you hear bells ringing that's just my cats deciding to make themselves known but the captain and the bike chaplain moved up in the center, which is in the lower left corner. And the kill teams started to move out. Some of the teleport homer ones picked up and uh, prepared to deploy from deep strike. The kill team in the lower right sustained some casualties. And then another kill team pushed forward and charged into my blade guard veterans. At this point, this was a pretty important moment in the game because Lou forgot to declare my captain as a target and ended up getting heroically intervened. But even with that and the backswing of the two blade guard that survived, Lou would have survived pretty well because of some pretty hot uh, storm shield saves. That said, he did lose both of those storm shields and the way that they were configured meant that uh, he was out of coherency when they died and he ended up losing two units to the coherency check at the end. Now me, I used my apothecary or my singular priest to bring one of the blade guard back. I pushed up and I fully expected to be able to, to wipe out this bike chaplain with a charge from three blade guard veterans who the sanguinary priest had put in the assault doctrine. Turns out Lou was making saves like a madman with this chaplain and he only took one wound from it. That was pretty ridiculous, but it was pretty awesome for him. He was able to turn around and kill the blade guard veterans the next turn, which as anybody who has faced Bladeguard knows, is a pretty big deal. At the same time, my snipers up top were able to, uh, well, sniper uh, with his gun, his, uh, I forget what it's called, but the last fusils did some, did some work, and the other character tried to, uh, or the, the sergeant tried to snipe out the Primaris Apothecary over there. W was able to do some wounds to him, but not kill him. And then my Terminators came out of reserve. They were a unit that had to survive to the end of the game, so I put them in this corner. They charged in, wiped out 
the incursors that Lou had left over there, and they stayed there the rest of the game, just being durable and not failing any saves, and uh, staying alive to score me five victory points. So I still kind of want to test out whether I like them better in this role or not. Uh, just keeping them staying alive was part of the strategy. Now the Sanguinary Guard, of course, they charged in and they were successfully able to kill the captain, but that chaplain, again, Rockstar with his saves, after being healed by the Primaris Apothecary, who was murdered by my captain, uh, he survived with one wound left and was able to swing back and kill two of the Sanguinary Guard in return. <laughs> Super frustrating. So my incursors ended up coming back on the table via Strategic Reserve, and they came around the corner, moved up, you know, the deployed within the six inches that they were allowed to, and then uh, charged the remnants of that kill team. And that kill team had taken some damage from my shooting, and the the biker died first, which really hampered Lou's movement. He wasn't able to get over there and, and put banners on. So that was... One of the things that kind of spelled victory for, for me and lost the game for Lou is I just kind of was able to keep him from scoring his points, uh, taking units out of the center, preventing him from raising his banners in several different areas, and just staying mobile and away from the things that could kill me until I got in a position to swoop in and wipe him out. So it was a fun game. I look forward to playing him again. Uh, hopefully I can keep my win streak going. Uh, even if I can't, I just, I had a really good time playing him. So thank you for staying this long for this extra casual mini battle report. And if you like this sort of thing, uh, we will be doing some more battle report style stuff for our crusade campaign. Cheers. <laughs>